0: Welcome to the Focus Church Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that it inspires you and gives you a fresh perspective. Enjoy the sermon. But before we dive into Nehemiah, I wanna give you like an exhaustive context on Nehemiah just before we get started. And then we'll dive into chapter one. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about what God has for us in chapter one. And then I'll get you out of here in the next three or four hours, and it'll be really, really great. <laughs> All the first time guys are like, get me out of here. <laughs> Nehemiah, f- first and foremost, one thing that you have to understand is I'm going to be referring to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, as Ezra, Nehemiah. And the reason for that is many Jews would qualify Ezra and Nehemiah as one book, say one book. So we're going to be looking at it as if it was one book this morning. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, there are three prominent figures. They all happen to be men in Ezra and Nehemiah. And the first man that we're going to look at, that we're going to have an overview of, his name is Zerubbabel. Come on, say Zerubbabel. I would say if you're pregnant with a boy and you've yet to find a name, man, that could be a really, 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 look at baby Zerubbabel over there. How crazy is that? That would be awesome. So that one was free. You can put an extra dollar in the offering bucket later on for that. If you do name in that, please tell me that would be awesome. But Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Ezra Nehemiah takes place, listen to this, 50 years after the Babylonians had exiled the Israelites from Jerusalem. So the Israelites had been out of Jerusalem for 50 years, and all of a sudden, in Ezra and Nehemiah, they begin to make their way back to Jerusalem, and Zerubbabel leads a group of people back to Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel, most importantly, I would say for the context of Ezra and Nehemiah, the thing that you have to remember is he is responsible for spearheading the reconstruction of the temple. Come on, say temple. Zerubbabel. Temple. The next figure that we have in Ezra and Nehemiah happens sixty years later. His name is, you guessed it, Ezra. Now, Ezra was compelled by God to re-establish spiritual community in Jerusalem amongst the Israelites. Nehemiah comes very shortly after Ezra. And Nehemiah is responsible for the reconstruction of the wall around Jerusalem. You got Zerubbabel responsible for the temple, Ezra responsible for the spiritual community, and then Nehemiah responsible for the reconstruction of the wall. Y'all with me today? I know that this is boring. This is a lot of history, but bear with me for just a moment. What's interesting about all three of these stories is all three of them end in a downer. They they all end in a very anticlimactic way. You think that a lot of good things are going to happen, and things are going to be great, and we're reconstructing Jerusalem, both spiritually and physically, and it's going to be awesome, and the ending is going to be amazing, and they all end in like a Debbie downer. They all end in a minor key, if you're a musician. So Zerubbabel, he leads the people back, he reconstructs the, the temple, And as the temple is finished, what the Israelites are expecting is they're expecting a huge aha glorious moment where the glory of God shines down and there's a pillar of fire and there's smoke that surrounds the temple and it's this huge glorious moment. And what happens is the temple begins to be finished and then nothing happens. And everybody is like, well, what's going on? In fact, the elders of that community that remember when King Solomon's temple was were, were established, they remember that after King Solomon's temple had been established, that there was a great uprising in the glory of God, and God showed up, and the presence was very tangible. And then when this new temple is reconstructed, really nothing happens, and they, be, they begin to look back upon their years in Solomon, and it's like this, again, it's like very anticlimactic. And then, I hope that you're encouraged this morning by that, by the way. And then Ezra comes along. And Ezra is there to reestablish a spiritual community. And so, Ezra, he galvanizes the people together. And Ezra begins to teach the Torah. Come on, say Torah. If you're wondering what the Torah is, it's often also could be re- referred to as the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch or the Torah being the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so Ezra, he begins to, to again, galvanize the spiritual community, teach them the Torah. And one of the, one of the interesting things that Ezra finds is Ezra finds that a lot of the Israelites are married, have intermingled with the Canaanites. And And Ezra begins to look back upon the Torah and he remembers the scriptures that say you are a holy people set apart and and you are consecrated and all these things. And so what Ezra does is essentially he holds a town meeting and he says, okay, what we're going to do is everybody that has intermingled, married with the Canaanites, non-Jews, you're going to get a divorce and your families are gonna be separated, and that's what God wants. And as as you can imagine, that didn't go too well. And uh, again, it just kind of ends on like a bit of a downer, like Ezra was not really, he was expecting this spiritual awakening, and then people get mad, and they disperse, and it just kind of over, so yeah. And then Nehemiah comes around, and Nehemiah has a burden for the wall, and he actually is successful in the reconstruction of the wall of Jerusalem, But all the while, and if you studied the book of Nehemiah, you know this, that all the while, while Nehemiah is reconstructing the wall, he's he's consistently up against opposition. There's a ton of opposition, and you kind of get to the end of of when the wall is reconstructed, and you kind of begin to wonder, like, maybe he could have handled that a little bit differently without as much conflict. Okay, so then the whole book, are you guys still with me today? Are you still with I know it's not. We're just, okay, 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 praise God. South campus, are you still, west campus, is the west campus asleep today? Okay, here we go. So the book ends, and Ezra and Nehemiah, they get together, and they hold a spiritual awakening kind of like what Ezra re-envisioned but 2.0 he brought in Nehemiah and what they do is they they spend days on end reading the Torah and they they hold the feast of tabernacles and they recommit to the ways and the things of God and they repent of their sins and they do all these things And it's like a great, and and you think like, okay, actually the book is going to end on a high note. And then after the festival is over, Nehemiah begins to walk around the city of Jerusalem. He's walking around and he very quickly discovers that nobody has changed, that they're still not obeying God. They're still not committed to the Lord. They're still not obeying the Torah. They're using the wall as a marketplace. They're doing all these things. And Nehemiah gets mad. He gets ticked off some would say po'd but he gets so mad and he, he's like he does something ridiculous it says this in the book of nehemiah like he gets so mad and he actually it's, it's crazy he like begins to pull out people's hair right i don't know if you've ever got that mad before but nehemiah and i'm not giving you justification for that. it's not, it's not biblical justification to pull out your coworker's hair or your boss's hair, but what I'm saying is, like, he's so enraged, he doesn't even know how to react, and so he just, he goes off on this tantrum, he pulls people's hair, it's crazy. Are you guys encouraged yet? Like, is that just, you came to church, like, I just want to be lifted up and encouraged, like, this is for you, like, this is what God has, like, you're just gonna walk out of here so full of faith after this, yeah, I just believe that. <laughs> It's like, no, you're not. I'm, I'm actually worse than when I came in. Pastor Michael, like, I'm leaving discouraged, you know? So at the very end of the book, Nehemiah, he goes to God and he prays. And in a nutshell, he basically says, okay, God, I tried. <laughs> Please remember me. And the book ends. <laughs> it's like, okay, like, God, why did you put that in the Bible? Like, that was the most discouraging book ever possible. Like, why in the world did you put that? And I, and I think that if you, if you take a look back, the 30,000-foot view of Nehemiah, it's total theme, and if you're not careful, you're going to miss it. But the total theme is you can have external change in your life. You can come to church. You can serve on a team. You can join a group. You can begin to give. You can post on social media, church tomorrow. You can highlight the verse of the day. You can do all these external changes. You can get baptized. You can do all these external changes, like the reconstruction of the temple, the festivals, and the wall. But if your heart doesn't change, then none of it matters. If at the end of the day, your heart is not different then all of the external things that you've worked so hard to do fall flat. So this morning, I want to look at Nehemiah chapter 1, and if you're wondering, this isn't the end of the sermon. I haven't even started, and uh, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to talk about how God wants to change your heart. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that at all of our locations, we would do more than have an outside, an external change. But I pray in Jesus' name at the sound of my voice for our South Campus, for our West Campus, for our East Family, for our Spanish Campus, for everybody joining us online. That over the course of the next 20 minutes, we would experience a heart change. So that we would not go back to the sins before, but we would have a spiritual awakening, a transformation of the heart. In Jesus' name. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter one. We haven't even read the scripture. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter one. And chapter one, verse one says simply this. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I, Nehemiah, was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some of the other men who had just arrived in Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. Verse 3. They said to me, things are not going well for those who have returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by Verse 4. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of God in heaven. We're going to pause right there. If you're taking notes, write this down. The title of the sermon today is A Change of Heart, and I want to give you three indications that your heart has been changed by Christ, and some of you will be able to relate to these, and it may be good confirmation that you are on the right track, and then there may be a couple of you who are missing one or two of these elements, and it may just serve as as inspiration to grow closer to God. And then we're going to have a very quick time of prayer at the end. And if you're okay with that, say yes. Three in- inclinations, three, uh, three things that would, would identify you as you have a heart that's changed by Christ. Here's point number one. You have a burden for what's broken. You have a burden for what's broken. Uh, you are, if you are unmoved, and unchanged by the brokenness of the world around you, then then chances are you might need some adjustment of the heart. Like when you look at the world around you, are you able to walk past it and ignore it or does it actually affect and burden the condition Of your heart when you think about your lost friends and your lost relatives some of you you might have become too casual with the unsaved family members you're texting on on the daily you see them every week cousins aunts and uncles but how how is it that you have you're so unburdened by their salvation how is it that you haven't told them about jesus how is it that you haven't expressed the good things that god is doing in your life if, if you are unburdened by the things that are broken, chances are you need a heart adjustment this morning. Nehemiah, the moment that, that he caught wind, that the wall had been destroyed, it says immediately that he got on his knees, he wept, he fasted, and he prayed for days. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you fasted for somebody else? When was the last time you fasted in general And then when was the last time you fasted for somebody else? I have a rule in my life that anytime someone comes to me with a big need and I take it up to the Lord, I'm going to fast for three days that God would do a miracle in their life. When was the last time you fasted for three days for yourself, let alone fasted for three days for the brokenness of the world? An indication that your heart has been changed is you are burdened by the things that are broken. If you're with me, say yeah. When I was 20 years old, I a lot of you know this, and I've told this story probably five years ago. I moved to the Dominican Republic, and I was doing a year studying under missionaries in the Dominican Republic. And about month 10, I we took a trip from Santo Domingo, the capital of the Dominican Republic, and we drove eight hours to Haiti. And I, it's, it's crazy. We're driving through the mountains, and it's awesome. And we we crossed the Dominican-Haitian border. By bus, we immediately got into Haiti, drove an additional hour, hour and a half to Port au Prince, the capital. And we'd spend the next few days ministering in Haiti. We would do things like we'd pray for the pastors there, we'd try to encourage them, we'd have lunch with the the church staff, and we'd just do everything that we could at 20 years old. And we would just, you know, just Hopefully God would use us. And it was like the last day, and we decided that we were going to do a children's event to bring as many people to Jesus as possible. And so we drove outside the city. We drove three hours into El Campo, into the camp, like into the countryside. And if I could help you understand what it looks like, if you can just envision with me a massive, a massive field of tall grass and hundreds of yards away on the other side of the tall grass is the sea, is the ocean. So you can smell the salt. It's a hot summer's day. In Haiti, I think that every day probably is very hot in Haiti, by the way, but it's a hot day, huge field of grass, and there are hundreds and hundreds of homes, hundreds and hundreds of huts scattered throughout the field, and so we kind of broke up in teams, and we began to walk from hut to hut, home to home, and invite the Haitians to come out, hey, we're doing a big children's program, like, you're going to want to come, it's going to be awesome, there's free food and candy and games and songs and all that. So, so we begin to go hut to hut. And as I'm inviting these people, I'm noticing that there are these miniature huts littered throughout the field. And on the doors of these huts, they have red X's painted on them. And so I go to the Haitian missionary and I'm saying, hey, I'm noticing these huts with red X's. What's going on? What, what does that signify? And the Haitian mi- missionary says very uh, seriously, he says, Michael, well, these red X's on huts um, you got to understand that the families that have these, they're, they serve—they're they're voodoo families, and they make sacrifices in these huts to the voodoo gods, which are demons, right? And so he's like, you know, they make animal sacrifices, and honestly, many of them have made child sacrifices. And so the gravity of what we were about to do really hit me. And so, okay, wow, that's crazy. And so we went back to the field and we began to do these songs and throw out candy and play games. And if you've ever been on a missions trip, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we do all these things and things are going good for about 20 minutes. And then one of my friends, he gets up and he begins to present the gospel message in Creole to the Haitians. And he's talking about how Jesus died for them. And he's talking about how you've not come too far to be close to God again. How how there's nothing that you've done in your entire life that would separate you from God. And I might be preaching to you in this moment, but there's nothing that you've done this morning at our South Campus and our West Campus. There's nothing that you've done. You have not sinned too great to come back to Jesus this morning. And he began preaching the gospel to these children. And it seemed like it was all going well. And then out of the corner of my eye, this she had to be three years old. This three-year-old little Haitian girl, she ran off into the distance. And I'm focused on the event, but I'm also kind of, again, out of the corner of my eye, looking at this girl She's 100 yards away at this point. Again, huge field, 100 yards away. And very suddenly, a man quickly and intently approaches this very small, again, probably three years old at the oldest, this three-year-old girl, grabs her by the arm, takes out some sort of a rod, and begins to beat her in the middle of the open field. I mean, like, beat the heck out of this three-year-old girl. Adrenaline starts pumping. I immediately run over to the missionary. I'm like, do we like? Do we go beat this, guy? like, what do we do? Do we go, like, wh- I don't know, what do we do? Like, and she looks at me and she says, there's nothing, there's nothing that we can do. She said, if you go intervene, then you have one of two options. You leave, and the moment that you're gone, he beats her all the more, or you take her home and you adopt her for the rest of your life. What are you gonna choose? And so we just begin to pray. And I asked her later on that day, I said, "What was the reason why she was being beaten?" And she's like, "Well, I'm not for sure, but more than likely, her dad is voodoo, and he did not want her hearing the message that we were preaching of Jesus. And in that moment, it was like, it was like a burden on my heart began to solidify. And many of you might not know this, but I was originally hired here to be the kid's pastor. And I think that God, what he was doing at 20 years old, was he was beginning to break my heart for what breaks his. Y'all still with me today? Here's what I wrote down in my notes. The greater my heart breaks, the greater it can be used by God. The greater my heart breaks, the greater it can be used by God. Um, There are a few things that I think that all of us at the sound of my voice should have a broken heart for if you're currently following Jesus. I think that you should have a burden and a broken heart for friends and family who do not yet know Jesus. I have a prayer list that I pray every single morning. It's on my green couch. I I could take you you there every single morning. I drink my coffee. It's black coffee, because I'm a man. And I take my coffee, and I I sit down, and I I read my Bible, and I pray. (laughs) And I, I, yeah. And, and 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 I have names of friends and family members that do not know Jesus, and I pray for them every day. And I say, here's been my prayer this year. I say, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this person would have a supernatural encounter with you this year that would cause their heart to change and turn back to you. If you're not broken for your family and your friends, then I don't know that you'll ever be broken at all. You should have a, a brokenness for the next generation. I think that the next generation, I think that you should see what's happening. In the, you know that the, the devil is working overtime to attack your children. The devil is working overtime to attack your teenagers. And many of you are not invested in teaching the next generation about Jesus. And I would simply say this, if you have a calling on your life to serve the next generation and you're not doing it, shame on you. Because the devil is working too hard for you to sit down on your butt every single Sunday if God has given you a a, a burden for the next generation, you need to be using that in some capacity. It can be in here. It can be in Focus Kids. It can be in Focus Youth. It can be in the foster care system. You might have nieces and nephews that you could take out a couple of times a week and read the Bible with them. You might have friends that come over, neighbors, neighborhood kids that come over, and like, how hard would it be to just pray over them? Hey, before you leave today, is there anything that I can pray for you about? How hard would it be to just invest a little bit in to the next generation because if we don't who will i think you should have a burden for the next generation i think you should have a burden for leaders and laborers i have a huge burden on my heart for the next generation of leaders in my church i get to lead plug again right there at midnight tonight you need to sign up i think i'm i'm like i have a burden that we only have three campuses i'm like like bojangles popping up everywhere and we have the, it's good. It's really, I like, I really like it, but uh, it's really good. I'm not mad about that. But I'm, I'm mad about the fact that there are more Bojangles opening than Focus Church Campuses opening. And I think the only thing that we're missing is more leaders and more laborers. I think that we have the funds. I think that God will give us the building. I think it's up to you to step up. I think if you have a call of God to, to be a pastor or a campus pastor or to be a leader or to step up and Focus Kids, and you're not doing that, I think that you should. I think it's important to God. I'm gonna run out of time. I'm gonna keep going. Our city, if you look at our city, when was, when was the last time you drove through Cary and prayed over Cary? Like Cary as a whole. When was the last time you were in Holly Springs that you prayed over Holly Springs? When was the last time you were in Wendell or Garner or Clayton and you're driving along and you said, Lord, I pray that somehow the divorce rate would lower in my community. I pray that somehow the crime rate, I pray that somehow church attendance as a whole would begin to arise in Nightdale, North Carolina. When was the last time you prayed for your city? Our nation or our country, I don't know if you think this, I don't think that our country is in a good place. I don't know if you think that, I would heavily disagree with you. I think that it would be, you'd have to I don't think that you could ever really convince me anymore, and I'm not trying to get political, but I I don't really think that you could convince me that we live in a Christian country anymore. I think that sin has run rampant in every single area of our country, and I think that we need to pray, and I think that if you get anything from this sermon, the prayer of Nehemiah can change a city and so why are you so fearful to pray? What if, what if everything that you prayed for your city was immediately answered? Would anything, would anything had changed in your life? How many times have you prayed for your, I think you should pray for our world. I don't think things are, are looking good. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I feel like this whole sermon is very depressing today and I apologize for that. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that the next one will be really good. And uh, I think that you should pray for our world. I think that it matters. I think that it matters to God and I think that one man's prayer can make a difference for the entire world. I really believe that. If you don't believe that, I would encourage you to raise your faith level and raise the level of your prayer life today. Um, So you need to have a burden for what's broken. Number two, you need uh, prayer and repentance are foundational in your life. Prayer and repentance are foundational in your life. Martin Luther says this, to be a Christian without praying is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. If you call yourself a Christian and have no prayer life, I'd encourage you to reevaluate the condition of your heart. If you're with me, say yes. Verse 5, Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to continue. Then the Lord said, uh, Then then I said, O Lord God in heaven, this is Nehemiah praying. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love and obey his commandments. Verse 6, listen to my prayer, look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes. Even my own family and I have sinned, we have sinned terribly by not obeying your commandments, decrees, regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. I want to dissect that prayer in a second. But I, I like telling stories of how God has answered my own prayers. I could tell you three or four prayers just this month that have been answered by God. It was Wednesday. It was Wednesday evening and I was on a walk with my six-year-old son throughout our neighborhood and we were just walking. It was a beautiful day and I was just... I mean, we're just hand-in-hand, hand. like, I just, I'm very close to my children. We're just hand-in-hand hand walking and just talking and joking. We're talking about Spider-Man because that's typically what we talk about. And we're talking about Spider-Man. And then I, I, I say, uh, we pass by this house in our neighborhood, and I say, Elliot, look at that house. He looks at the house. And I say, about four years ago, your mom and I, we were looking to buy our first home, and we walked inside that house, and we weren't in love with it. But after we walked out of the house, and I was looking at him in the eye, I said, Elliot, remember this. I said, after we walked out of the house, Mikaela and I, Pastor Mickey and I, we prayed. You remember this, babe? We said, God, give us a house and a neighborhood just like this one. Because we didn't love the house, but we loved the neighborhood. And we bought our first home a couple of weeks later. And we bought our first home, and a couple of weeks after we bought our first home, we went through a walk in the neighborhood and wouldn't you know it, that we actually bought a home in that neighborhood and didn't even know it. And it was, isn't that awesome? It was like, like God cares about the big things. He cares about the little things. And it's like, I just, I wanted to tell my son that story because I'm like, you need to remember that this house was given to us by God. And that when you pray, it makes a difference. So I think prayer should be foundational in your life. I also think that repentance should be foundational in your life. And Nehemiah does something weird So he hears that the wall is destroyed. He gets a burden for the wall. And then he, starting in verse seven, or starting in verse six, he says, I confess that we have sinned against you. Even my own family and I have sinned. Verse seven, we've sinned terribly, not obeying your commandments, decrees, regulations. He like, he begins to pray, but he starts off his praying for Jerusalem with a reflection of his own heart. And what's interesting is, Nehemiah does, does two things, but he he Nehemiah confesses his specific sins, and I think that's important, and I think that that matters to God. I think when you when you confess your specific sins, I think that that really really matters to the Lord. Nehemiah one uh, seven, we have sinned terribly by not obeying your commands, decrees, and regulations. The second thing that Nehemiah does is he confesses for the sins of others. That's interesting. Like, when was the last time that your heart was so burdened that you said, oh, God, forgive my family, for I know that we've sinned. Forgive this city of Raleigh, for I know that we've sinned. And I want to say something, and it's going to be a little bit of a rabbit trail. I don't think that you all are going to catch it, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I hope that you grasp it. But every stronghold in your life thrives in unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin is a cesspool for strongholds in your life. And a stronghold is when the, this is. You're gonna get really deep for a second. A stronghold is when the enemy has a stronghold <laughs> of your life. Probably in a specific area. It could be an addiction. It could be a specific sin. And when you're not repenting of of specific sins like that, you you ignore them. And here's what happens. And this is a very intense verse, but you cannot dismiss any verse in Scripture. First John. says this, but when the people kept on sinning, it showed that they belonged to the devil who had been sinning since the beginning. I don't know about you, but I do not want to belong to the devil. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to confess my, the moment that I fall short. And trust me, I'm a human. I do. I had to apologize to my children the other day, just yesterday. I got angry. I lashed out. I had to apologize. I, I make mistakes all the time. And, and after I apologized, I said, Lord, forgive me, for I lashed out in anger. I, uh, repenting of your specific sins is important. Proverbs 28:13 says this. People who listen, <laughs> People who conceal their sin will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. I want to give you something that I need you to remember for the rest of your life. You need to embarrass sin before sin embarrasses you. What remains hidden will eventually come to light and will shame you. You better shame sin before it shames you. Get it out in the open. Talk about it with God. Talk about it with your group's leader. Talk about it with your team leader. Talk about it with your campus pastor. Um, Here's what happens when we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins he's faithful and just, will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all, say all, all, all unrighteousness. How? Just by confessing our sins. It's so easy. James five sixteen. confess your sins to each other so that, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and produces wonderful results. When you confess your sins to others, that doesn't, forgive you, but it allows people to pray for you so that you may be healed at a much faster rate than if you didn't receive the prayer. You guys still with me today? We're almost done. I think it matters to God. I think it matters when you're honest with God. You know, you say, I'm God, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with the doubt. I'm struggling with the unbelief. I'm struggling with the anger. I'm, forgive me for, I think God, I, I've never, I've never confessed to specific sin and not had God immediately meet me right then and there. I've never confessed a specific sin and felt an absence of God's presence. He's always rushed in. Verse number, uh, Point number three, John, you can come. Point number three, we're gonna close here in just a moment. Um, indications that you have... Uh, a changed heart. The first one is you have a burden for what's broken. The second one is prayer and repentance are foundational in your life. Here's point number three. There's a God-sized dream in your heart. I think that that's important. Verse 10 in Nehemiah chapter one says, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart and be kind to me. And then this last line is just so powerful. Nehemiah, in in the last verse of the first chapter, says, in those days, I was the king's cupbearer. And and you stop when you read that and you begin to wonder, what business does a cupbearer have building a wall? None. None. Think about that. A cupbearer goes to the king and says, I've seen a burden. He prays about it. And then he's a cupbearer with a dream of rebuilding a wall. What business does a 23-year-old single dad at our church have in funding our new church building? What business does a project manager at Duke Energy have in leading us to the presence of worship each and every week? What business does an emergency room doctor have at being an elder at our church? What business does a widow have in leading a seniors group every month of over 20 members? Shout out to my homegirl Denise Kiker. What business does a stay-at-home mom have in running the entire guest experience team at our West Campus? What business does a basketball coach have running the entire production team at our South Campus? Keep going, Jake. What business does a landscaper have in leading over 50 men and women for the safety team at our East Campus? What business does an anchor for WRAL have in teaching-focused kids at our West Campus? What business does a teacher have in helping plant our Espanol Campus? Here's what I I wrote down in my notes. When there's a God-sized dream in your heart, it becomes your business. When God puts a dream in your heart, it becomes your business to accomplish that dream. I want to bring up one more story, and then we're going to pray. You can pull that picture on the screen. This is my friend. Do you have it? There he is. Look at that beautiful face. This is my friend Braden, And Brayden, a, he's a man of God. He's, a 12, he's 12 years old, but he's a man after God's own heart. And a couple of months ago, God began to develop a burden on Brayden's heart for missions. And so, Brayden, at 12 years old, YouTubed everything, built a website, began to collect golf balls and sell them online. And every single dollar goes to missionaries all throughout the world. He's raised over $500 so far. A 12-year-old boy. A 12-year-old boy. And I begin to think like. What business does Braden have raising 500 because God had put it on his heart? And I think an indication that your heart has been changed is if God puts a dream so big on your heart that you have no idea how to accomplish it on your own. I need every eye closed at all of our campuses in this moment. It's the most important moment of the entire service. Nobody moving or looking around. Every eye closed. But if you say, you know what, Pastor Michael, I, I need to repent of my sins and give my life to Jesus. The Lord has been speaking to me the entire time. I know that that's the next step in my life. I've been trying to live my life according to my own desires and my own will. I'm ready in this moment to surrender my life to Jesus, to give my life to him If that's you on the count of three, I just want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand high enough so that I could see it. I just want to pray for you. But you say, Pastor Michael, at all of our campuses, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. I'm ready to to totally surrender my heart like Nehemiah did. On the count of three, just raise your hand. One, two, three, at the South Campus and at the West Campus and at the East Campus, just raise your hand high enough so that I can see it, high enough so that our prayer team can see it. If you're raising your hand, we're gonna put a little white card in your hand. Just keep your hand raised high enough until you receive a white card in your hand. Come on, raise your hand right now. It's not too late. Some of you haven't raised your hand, but you need to raise your hand. One, two, three, raise your hand, begin to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Come on, hands going up right now at our East Campus, hands at our South Campus and at our West Campus. Come on, this is what God is doing in our church. He's bringing hearts back to him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's celebrate everybody who, who's raised their hand to give, to, to give their life to Jesus today. Would you stand up at all of our locations? We're gonna take a moment And I want everybody at the sound of my voice to lift your hands and repeat after me. In Jesus' name, I surrender my life to you. I repent of my sins. And I choose to follow you with the audacity of Ezra, with the audacity of Nehemiah, with the courage of Zerubbabel. Put a dream inside my heart. Maybe just for the next 30 seconds, you'll lift your hands and say, God, put a, put a God-sized dream in my heart. Put, put something irrevocable and unexplainable in my heart. Give me a burden for the lost. Come on, begin to pray right now. God, give me a God-sized dream this morning. Maybe there are specific sins in your life that you need to repent. Lord, I repent of these specific be 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 specific with them. Name them. I think it matters to God. Maybe you say, put a God-sized dream in my heart this morning and allow the Lord to speak to you just for the next few moments. Come on, lift your voice and lift your hands. God, give me a God-sized dream as you've given Nehemiah. Give me a God-sized dream as you gave Zerubbabel. And and let me be successful and let me be successful in turning hearts to you. Let me pray, this year, Lord, give me a God-sized dream. Give me a burden for what's broken this year in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. Lift your hands one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for salvations. And we thank you that our hearts are turning towards you. Put a God-sized dream in our heart this year. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's celebrate the Lord. Let's clap our hands today. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. This ministry is made possible because of the generosity of so many people like you. To partner with us, you can click the link in our description or visit www.givetofocus.com. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe now or share it with a friend. For more inspirational content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com focuschurch Join us next week for another incredible message.